This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. And I am running the ship today, but I am not alone. <laughs> I am joined by the most illustrious crew, <laughs> Lindsay Gibbs, a sports reporter based out of Washington, D.C., and new writer of Power Plays, a newsletter everybody should be signing up for and reading. Hey, Hi, Lance, Ted. Although you? I must admit, I would love to see you just do this yourself. <laughs> <laughs> just no. talking to myself. I mean, I, well, honestly, you know, I'm a Gemini, Amira, so. I think you could do it. You could totally do it. <laughs> I believe in myself, too. I'm also joined by Shireen Ahmed, freelancer up in Toronto, Canada. Shireen, how are you, my love? I'm ready, ready to burn it all down. Yeah, Shireen has had a week. We'll get into that in a second. And Brenda, my fellow historian, associate professor of history at Hofstra University. Hey, Bren. Hey. Is that time in the semester? How are you holding up? Mm-mm-mm. I'm yeah. drowning in grading. Exactly, exactly. We're crawling towards break. We're almost there. Anyways, on the show this week, Shireen is going to walk us through the mess that is Don Cherry. And we're going to check in with her about what's been a tumultuous week dealing with Hockey Night in Canada. Then I'm going to talk to Dr. Courtney Cox from the University of Oregon. I'm going to do a scholar spotlight on her work. And then we're going to talk about the latest chapter of the Kaepernick saga. Lastly, the crew is going to come back together. And we're going to talk about the best, but mostly the worst, depiction of sports in sports movies. So let's get it going. So this week in Canada, there was a bit of a mess. Shireen, I'm going to let you take it away and tell us what, what has been going on up in the north. Okay, so here in Toronto, I'm in Toronto, well, outside of it, home of the 2019 NBA champions. Basically, last Sunday, for those of you who heard the episode 132, I had burned Don Cherry's comments. He's part of this pivotal show, pivotal sort of meaning Canadian iconic, which just means like white guy in charge for a really long time unnecessarily. And he's been on that show. Don Cherry and his co-host Ron McLean have been on the air since 1982. McLean joined in 86. And bad takes like Don Cherry is trying to represent the blue collar working mind you he is a super super rich very powerful man so he's sort of performative in his oh I'm just like a blue collar Joe like the rest of you is you know really puts on the accent his grammar is terrible he's inarticulate sort of meanders through his thoughts just he appeals to everybody because of his shtick so he went on because in Remembrance Day in Canada and I didn't realize that it doesn't happen in the United States 
people were poppies based on a poem called in Flanders field. And it's a poem that all Canadian children at elementary school have to memorize. And it's basically you were poppy out of respect for vets. So Don Cherry, who has known ties to very alt-right political candidates in provincial and municipal elections, he went on this thing to say, you know, you people, and this is very important for you to, to understand. He said, you people, you come over here and you take our milk and honey. So et cetera, et cetera. That's, it's all over the internet and embedded, I think, into one of the pieces I wrote. This whole thing of you people, he's basically looking at racialized communities and as immigrants and saying, you do not respect vets. You did not wear the poppy. Okay, first of all, the poppy is environmentally unsound. It falls off all the time. It's it's like he's basically saying you not wearing poppy. I don't know. Has he checked the lapels of every newcomer to Canada? Like, it's just it was very it was terrible. He was super xenophobic. He is a known racist, misogynist, homophobe. He is anti-indigenous. He is mean to everybody who's not this white Anglo-Saxon Canada. He's terrible with Russians. He's made disparaging comments about Swedes. Who makes disparaging comments about Swedes other than Hope Solo? Who does that? Like, who actually does that? The Finns? Like, it's it's terrible. He's got a long history of this. He hates French Canadian players, hates the Montreal Canadians, just is not an ally for women's hockey. Like, is it, he, you're like, why is he, aren't Canadians supposed to be polite? But this is the interesting thing, my friends. And this is like a Shireen take. Canadians are racist as fuck. And they will say, no, this guy's allowed to stand here, right to expression, whatever, whatever. So they'll get all the racism out via Don Cherry and it'll be considered okay. So he's part of hockey. Anyways, I wrote an op-ed for the Globe and Mail on Sunday, right after we recorded Burn It All Down. And it went up Sunday night and it hit the Monday morning news cycle. And, you know, my editor, Amberlynn, thank you for that. She got it up really fast. But he was fired. Don Cherry was fired by Sportsnet, which is owned by Rogers Media as well, on Monday afternoon. So the country's been in a tizzy because the pro-Don Cherry folks are like, you don't care about free freedom of expression. You don't care about freedom of speech. Well, first of all, freedom of speech is an American thing. To be the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is freedom of expression, which is not applied to private corporations. So they need to check their information. So it's just, it's been a week. But one of the most telling things of this week and the takeaway of a lot of this is very sincerely the work that people of color who love hockey, who are sports writers, who are sports journalists, have to do in this country and how saturated this place is. I went on Canada Land, a show with Jesse Brown. He invited me on to talk about this. But I always get back to this. Yes, I, people are like, oh, you're always complaining. And some of the emails I've gotten this week are like the best in terms of the most racist, awful, terrible. Like that's, I hit a nerve. I hit a nerve because I called out systems of white supremacy that people in Canada do not like to talk about race, period. Now, last night, because Coach's Corner, this show happens every Saturday between the first and second periods. Ron McClain, the sidekick, who sat there complicitly nodded while Don Cherry was doing his thing, did come out and apologize also. But he came back last night and he kind of, you know, did this four minute spiel basically eulogizing Don Cherry, the racist, while trying to distance himself from the racist and also saying he's just a he's just a fantastic person that was like one of the last lines so 
miss me with the, he's a great person. He's done a lot for people. He's a fucking racist. It's okay to not love a racist. It is okay to do that. And it's almost like people feel as if Don Cherry is indebted. Like he, we owe him something. I don't know this man, anything. I don't know. I don't know him anything and neither do a lot of people in this country. And I will say it sparked a lot of conversations. And then in the gong show, because Canada is dumb when it comes to talking about race, a woman on a show, which is sort of was almost it, which was modeled after the view. I know y'all are like, why would anyone model anything after the view? It's called the social. So a woman named Jesse Allen talked about her experience being bullied by white guys. And she said the word white boys. This country literally went after her for an apology. They went after her and said her comments were just as racist as Don Cherry. Okay, Canada, say it with me. Reverse racism is not a thing. No, because Canada doesn't get that. And so at the end of the day, bitches be laboring is what's happening up yeah. here. It's people of color that are exhausted, that are sending each other. I can't tell you how many messages and DMs of support and text I got from other journalists of color. I got yeah. people supporting and we tired. I got so many calls yesterday from the CBC and I was like, I'm not talking about this anymore. I'm done. Right. Y'all don't deserve it. Yeah, I want And I wanted to ask you about that, but first I wanted to note that, you know, this wasn't, this didn't stay in Canada. So as part of his, I don't know, reaction to getting fired, Don Cherry went on Fox News because <laughs> he, <did. duh>. yeah. <laughs> he went on Tucker Carlson's show where, you know, Carlson obviously wanted to use him to be part of the kind of xenophobic anti-speech whatever that they try to do on his show. And so he had Don Cherry on the show to say, you know, what happened and Don Cherry said, you know, I messed up because I shouldn't have said you people, you know, that's where I really went wrong. And Tucker Carlson said, yeah, you offend everybody. People who are offended are fascist. They're fake outrage. They have no real feelings. And then the rest of the interview, which I watched, so you all didn't have to, ended up being <laughs> actually really strange because you can see Don Cherry is actually more He's not contrite at all, but he's not necessarily giving Tucker Carlson readily like red meat applicable so that he can go off about fascists. At one point, Tucker Carlson goes off on the fascism road and saying that people have no feelings. And you can see Don Cherry's just kind of sitting there like, this man is actually <laughs> like this degrees to this. And then they ended up both talking about their own racist grievances, but like not to each other. So Tucker Carlson seemed to have no sense of like what hockey was, let alone who Don Cherry was. And Don Cherry was talking about Northern Quebec. Oh my God. Carlson had no idea what he was talking about. So what ended up happening is two racist people just talking to themselves really past each other and occasionally smirking at each other. And Carlson ended the show by saying, Google Don Cherry, he's a famous man. <laughs> and then it was oh, over. No. So it was a shit show. It was a mess, but it also tells you, you know, the fact that there's a subsect of this country 
and Canada, right, who are looking to each other to embolden and kind of add to their own latent xenophobia. And Don Cherry, you know, really encompassed what many here on the right are embodying daily when they are spewing anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so you could see their intention was to be in solidarity with each other, but like most things, they just fucked it up. So, you know, it was actually, if you want to ever watch episode and not lose brain cells, it's quite humorous if you can get by the, you know, all the loads of racism. But I did want to go back to what Shireen was saying about the labor involved and the emotion. And I, I just wanted to offer a check in Shireen and say, you know, how, how are you doing? Like, I think that sometimes we minimize or we get used to some of the awful words that are sent to us when we dare to speak and said, and, you know, I saw you said a tweet and you said, uh, white men are mad at me again, number, you know, like 6,389 or something like that. And so I just did want to give you space to like, actually just, you know, be real and emotionally process like what, what this does. Well, I mean, what it does and what the attempt here is to other people in the margins from the game and that I'm strong enough of a hockey fan to not let that happen and, you know, dedicated enough to sport not to allow that to be used against me. There's this attempt and the great thing about this, and I will thank Amira and Brenda for this very specifically as sport historians, you both have actually changed the way that I look at sports and using history to understand context is crucial. And in this country and in the history of ice hockey, the Negro Leagues and the Maritimes, indigenous communities having, you know, pickup games and having hockey as a part of their identity is a thing. So this idea that white hockey is the only hockey is absolutely factually incorrect and it's bullshit. So in terms of like reminding everybody that it's almost like sometimes you feel like you're shouting into an abyss and it does get exhausting. Like, yeah, people were like, you got Don Cherry fired. I didn't get Don Cherry fired. Don Cherry's fucking xenophobia got Don Cherry fired. And also a couple other takes about this was that Sportsnet and Rogers Media, he was a liability financially. It was time for him to go. The man is 85 years old. Time for him to go. He's literally that racist uncle that's on TV every Saturday night. And yeah, he's been doing this longer than I've been. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's something that this hockey night in Canada, it's called Coach's Corner. The segment was put on by the CBC. They sold the rights. It's very bizarre. They sold the rights to the specific segment to Sports Center Rogers Media. So it's weirdly complicated. But I think the reality is, is that it's exhausting. So I checked out Friday night. I was actually in Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University, doing a panel, which I'll talk about in my What's Good, and Dr. Courtney Sito, who we've had on the show, who is an incredible expert on hockey and identity and race in in Canada and beyond. She said something, because I've been like basically retweeting her all week as well, is that she's been inundated with media requests, and so was I. But it's only when shit hits the fan. We're not structurally embedded into the media. We're just asked about an opinion. Don't get me wrong. I was really busy this week and I took it because your girl needs a Dyson vacuum and is going to buy one. Also, I think it's important. Like I took the response. You're supposed to laugh there. Like I, you know, what <laughs> my point is, is that what I want? Please I, clap. I, I, please, I deserve that, that vacuum because I've been working my ass off. And it, what Amir's trying to say is it's not just the work of going and writing and thinking. It's the emotional toll it takes because for every 
single piece, I write about this, the dozens of emails that are xenophobic, you know, absolutely marinated in gendered Islamophobia, it does take a toll. I'm really lucky and I count myself super lucky, not just because the way the end of my week ended up being in Kingston, an incredibly powerful BIPOC space, but it's because I have a support system. For all of you out there that are doing the work, LGBTIQ, Indigenous, Black, Muslim, whatever communities that are out there, you know how important your support network is. You know how much this means. I mean, the funniest comment I got, and Amira, you'll appreciate this, is, well, you're biased because you're a Habs fan. Yes, I went after Don Cherry's xenophobic, racist, homophobic comments because I love the Canadians. That's exactly what this is. So even the analyses can be like vacuous as fuck, but it's, it was, it's hard. I was like expecting to have a fun Sunday last week to do burn it all down, to watch Parks and Rec and just do laundry. That's not what happened. I'm grateful for the opportunity and to have this platform because there's so many people that don't. So many people of color you know, biracial folks who just get lost out there and who love hockey. This isn't about not loving hockey. It's about what hockey deserves and it deserves everybody truly. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of perfect place to end, but I just wanted to say like, Shereen, watching you work this week, I mean, I'm always in awe of you, (laughs) but seeing how much you're able to take on and for the greater good is empowering. And I just want to, you know, it's like I said, it's always an honor to work with you. And I think I get more excited when I see you called up just to talk about like the Toronto Raptors win, because I want to see you like, you know, utilize not just for these moments of reckoning, but I'm so grateful that, you know, your voice is out there. And, you know, seeing Ron McLean's like, meltdown as he's trying to like publicly (laughs) grieve not having his friend there it just made me realize how many people think the public space is their personal space and you know he could do that grieving privately but he's not been told that anything needs to be private you know he's been told that he his feelings are everyone's feelings for his entire life and that was just like really frustrating to watch and to hear. And it's just, you know, so many people have so much left to learn. And it's unfortunate that so much of that teaching falls on your shoulders, Shereen. Indeed. Well, thank you for the conversation. And thank you for your work this week. You've taught people a million things. And you've taught me that uh, HNIC stands for... (laughs) Hockey night in Canada, and not what? Wow! Yeah, I assumed if you're black, you probably know my confusion. Anyways, so thank you for that, but also, you know, you're right. Bitches be laboring, and I just wanted to take the time to say we see you, we see your fight, we see your tenacity, uh, and we're covering you in love. Next up, I'm going to talk to Dr. Courtney Cox about her scholarship, and we're going to probably scream into the void a little bit about the Kaepernick workout or whatever the hell clown shit show that was. Hey, flamethrowers. It's now my absolute pleasure to sit down with Dr. Courtney Cox. Courtney is an assistant professor of race and sports in the Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Oregon. She is 
in her first semester, almost on or quarter, I think you're in the quarter system. And so definitely sending hearty congrats to you. I know that first, you know, semester quarter is always trying, but yeah. And so Courtney has also worked for ESPN as well as the NPR affiliate KPCC in the LA area and spent some time with the LA Sparks. And I just wanted to call up Courtney and do a scholar spotlight on her work and talk about some of the headlines that we're seeing in the sporting world today. So Courtney, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you for having me here. This is incredible. This is like a dream gig for me. I've been a long time, long time listener. Yes. First time you know? <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. So first, I just wanted to do a quick scholar spotlight. I really like really into the work that you're doing. And I just wanted to give you a second to tell us about it. What does it mean to be an assistant professor of race and sports? What are, what are you focusing on? What's going on, Dr. Cox? <laughs> so I think for me, as people within academia know, a lot of uh, the beginning of this journey as an assistant professor pre-tenure is about figuring out what happened with that dissertation and like what is still useful or viable <laughs> for a book project, Lord. right? <laughs> so I'm in that phase. And so my my dissertation uh, focused on girls and women competing um, in basketball specifically all around the world. So each chapter focused on a different context. And I really wanted to think about what women's basketball means in a contemporary moment, especially thinking globally, like basketball is such a global sport and there's so much research that's dedicated to thinking about what we call soccer here in the U.S. and globally is called football. There's so many ways in which people are thinking about global flows of labor, of people, product ideas in a particular way that I don't think that basketball has really gotten the same amount of shine. And so for me, I was thinking about gender and global flows in a way that that focused on basketball, a sport that is invented in the U.S., that men and women start playing around the same time. There's only a few weeks where it's a, a men's only sport. And thinking about what that means in a, in a contemporary moment where we have WNBA players who are playing overseas, where we have an influx of new, fresh NCAA talent that's playing um, in the U.S. I'm thinking about the various ways in which there are all these people moving across various borders because of sport and these ways that which there's also this local flavor of sport. And so um, that's my work. I'm thinking about that through all of these incredible athletes, journalists, people that are promoting the sport around the world and thinking about how they're in conversation with each other. So that's one of my big projects right now. Yeah, it's really interesting and, and compelling to think about. You know, I've been thinking about this issue um, of migrant labor and how we can think about it in terms of athletics. And so within that, it seems to me like part of what you're paying attention to is this kind of labor aspect of sport. The last few days on Twitter, we've watched in real time the next kind of chapter of the Kaepernick saga play out. And it's been not only in the kind of live tweeting and reporting of his kind of clown show sham of a workout, then his audible move and change of the location to really what we're in now is like what day three of like hot takes and threads. And now since it was Monday morning, you know, we got all the morning show takes and, and clips and all of this stuff. Can we just rap about this for a little bit? Like, where are you falling in all of this? What are, what are, what are we missing in this conversation? What 
is sticking out to you as you're watching all of this kind of unfold? Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting because I am so I'm I'm kind of finding my footing, kind of finding this thread across all of my work, which a lot of times feels really different. Like a lot of times I'm thinking about sports in very different contexts, but kind of the thread across that is labor. And I think the weird thing about my work, and and I would say I, I also see this in your work as well, is both that this kind of connection and maybe there's a fraught relationship between labor and pleasure in sport. Because I, I think one of the things that um, whether we're thinking about Kaepernick or anyone else is, you know, some of it is we know the NFL to be this very visceral symbol of American capitalism in a particular way. Uh, but there's also we ha- we cannot separate that from the pleasure that sport gives us as fans, as athletes, as journalists to consume sport, to create media around it. Um, and so some of that relationship, those tensions are kind of really where I like to live. And so thinking about this idea of, you know, there's there's a way that we think about why Kaepernick would want to be back in this league. There's so many things we could critique about the NFL in terms of just his own body, right? His own labor, his own health and safety, let alone the politics of how he's been treated. But I think there's also a way we can think about what sport gives to us, right? It gives us this platform to talk about things that we may not really engage with. You know, there's so many instances we should be talking about things as in terms of like our own labor or our own relationship to unions, for example. And sport gives us this language to talk about these things in a particular way I think is really important, which is why I think many of us study sport. Because it makes plain these things, these these issues that we can all sit and grapple with. And the, and the Monday morning sweep of all of these talking heads, mostly man heads, right, that are talking about this issue has been so interesting because I think Kaepernick is not only rooted in this articulation of representation, right? So that starting with the silent protest and what that can mean, what the protest represents, how it's tied to the anthem or the ways that we're trying to disentangle it from the anthem. There's the ways in which there's also the labor component about who can play, who should play, the way it's litigated in the legal aspect, as well as what we're talking about now is this waiver and what this future litigation could be for Kaepernick, the fallout of this, and then the media aspect, right? And so Stephen A. Smith is bearing a lot of this, a lot of the anger that people have is is towards him, rightfully so. But I, I also think it's fascinating to think about all of the other Black men that have been talking about this for the past 72 hours, let alone the past three years, and the ways in which they have been vastly disappointing. Right. Yo. Yes. Yes. And like, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I feel that disappointment on such a visceral level because it's not, for me, it's not just the commentary, like the, the paid commentators. It's the folks on the corner. It's the barbershop. It's the, you know, your distant Facebook friends. It's become a stand in a conduit really for all these other issues actually baked into Kaepernick. It reveals all these other kind of fault lines and tensions about like fundamental disagreements about how you get free and what freedom looks like and what the state of blackness is now. And so, you know, I think a huge part of that for me definitely is like, how does that look like if it's always mediated and articulated through the voices of black men, you know, which is so true. It's so true. 
I mean, this is your work. I mean, I mean, this is in many ways. And I like I to me, I really connect. And, and I should say when I'm speaking and writing, I, I interview women who are not black. But we have to understand, like for me, thinking about the basketball project, you know, basketball is a black sport. It, it did not start that way, per se. It was very exclusionary. But there is a way that it represents a, t- a particular urban space, the way certain bodies are read. And for me, thinking about it as a Black masculine space and what Black women mean in that space globally is really important. And I think you also do that. I was um, reading the other day your medium piece on Rose Robinson, and I was thinking about her and Gwen Berry and even like Wyomi Atias, right? So thinking about like, the various ways we have these men in our lives, right? Dr. Harry Edwards, Howard Bryant, who are people that are very important in this longer lineage, but they're even, you know, Howard Bryant is writing this book, The Heritage, and it is a, it is a masculine project, this idea of who can get us free. And so this idea of, you know, our job, this kind of a recuperative history, I think, especially for your work, right, is is thinking about how, there are all these women that are doing the work. There are WNBA players that are protesting before Kaepernick, right? And so there's both a lack of visibility that is just as reflected in social movements across history, especially, you know, especially in this country, right? And so there's ways in which there is that neglect, but then there's also ways that who can talk about it and who I've seen talk about it um, and who I've been surprised by, right? So some of it is like the surprise of like Max Kellerman today. Yo, yes. Right? To have him be the one who's like making sense. And like Damien Wood, like, like you talk about that disappointment, talk about that. And I was thinking about that today when I was thinking of Stephen A. Smith, like back months ago, talking about Nessa, who's Cap's girl, um, you know, approaching him to clarify certain points. And I was rewatching that clip today because it was like retweeted or something onto my timeline. And even how that was shaped, it was like all around the fact that this beautiful young lady came up and she was really respectful and she wanted to clarify a few points. And so she clarified them because she had, you know, this firsthand knowledge, but it never led to a concession of the fact that his NFL sources were bogus and wrong. It never led to admission that she had like facts and argument and all of these things. It was just boiled down to that. She was a nice, respective girl holding her man down. And so thinking about even Nessa's role in this narrative that we never talk about, but has been a huge kind of piece of what this, this three year plus saga has been, especially when Cap's been silent, right? It's been the, his curated team around him speaking. And so many, so much of that focus has been on Eric Reed, right. Has been on, you know, tensions between him and Malcolm Jenkins, but what about, you know, but again, it returns us to that question of like, is that an incomplete conversation? Yeah. And I, you know, there was also the stuff really early on and I'm going back to like 2016, maybe early 2017, where people were blaming Nessa for like radicalizing him. Right. Right. Yeah. Of like you, you need to stop letting your girl, you know, block you from your blessings. You need to. And so there's a way that she's spun as this person that is in a sense, influencing him in one particular way, but we're also not crediting her, crediting her with like this idea of being an integral part of this project. No one is saying, wow, I wonder if Kaepernick spent the summer watching WNBA players protest police brutality and thought, hey, what is my role here, right? So there's no way that there is a lineage that is 
crediting that. It's always about who took a knee after him, right? So this idea of like doing that solidarity work and thinking even what it means in women's sports, right? And, you know, Megan Rapino is really doing a masterclass right now on allyship. How to be an ally, exactly. You know, but I'm thinking about her, but I'm also thinking about WNBA players where in the NFL, you don't see entire, you don't you don't see white players kneeling with black players. Whereas exactly. The WNBA had that allyship. And I don't know, and, and some of that might be rooted in kind of the marginalization that is rooted within that sport, period. Right. Where there's a way of understanding those struggles, but it's still an important contribution. And so I think, you know, I don't want to make this about who isn't included because I think there is a whole dialogue to just be made about what Kaepernick is doing, which I think is important on, on those three fronts three fronts in terms of representation, labor and media, but also our visceral response either way, whether it's this articulation of like, I'm going to buy the Kaepernick jersey, right? I'm going to literally buy something the NFL will make money off of in order to support him, which will make a statement in terms of this is a top selling jersey, right? And then you see all these people outside of Atlanta, right, that are wearing their jerseys. There's a way that's a representation. But there's also this idea of like, okay, I won't watch the NFL. Like we know so many reasons we should not have been watching the NFL for years now, right? So domestic violence, CTE, retired players funding, you know, like there's all these ways we should have known better. But I'm interested in how this is sometimes people's like final stand, which I think is important, right? Like when we're just like, okay, we're so fed up, we cannot do this anymore in good conscience. So I think these things surrounding him have been so interesting. And then it gets framed as a distraction versus to me, it's a discourse, right? There are all these like what Stephen A is saying is important to me because he represents a faction that isn't just him. It's a lot of men I'm seeing on Twitter. You know, there's a way in which I'm seeing these Max Kellermans, these Megan Rapinos, and then I'm also seeing, you know, tons of the other more expected responses to him. And then there's also the way that like lawyers are speaking up and saying these waivers were bogus to start from. It would be malpractice if a lawyer allowed him to sign one in the first place, right? The way that he has called for media to be witness to what's happening, right? So moving the location. It's like it's it's so many things that embody this country in a very American sport that for us as scholars, like some of it is like exhausting, right? Just at people. Yes. Some of it is like, I'm immersed in it and I can't look away from it because to me, it embodies so many important things that are so 2016 to 2019. Right. In terms of where we are. Right. Yeah. And I would be interested to know, like sometimes that immersion is real and like, actually I want to revisit the waivers and have you, you know, maybe tell folks who weren't, following this every minute, what the waiver situation is. But like, I think that actually speaks to the immersion is sometimes I forget that like I am in this and consuming every notion of it. And actually when you step back, you see how this disinformation campaign is really effective and really working because then I'll talk to somebody, whether it's a student or some, you know, a colleague who's less sports focused and they'll be like, Oh, you know, like, but he doesn't seem like he wants to play because they gave him a standard waiver and like everything he wanted. And you're like, oh, oh, those narratives like really held water with people or like, oh, for people who only see cap headlines and aren't on Twitter, aren't tapped into these same networks, aren't having some of the conversations we're having and therefore like actually running with narratives that we know on its face to be false. So like, I think that immersion part is really crucial, but could you just tell us for the listeners who are less up to speed with, with the kind of workout situation, can you break down what was going on with those waivers? 
Right. So most people received the memo that there had been a settlement involving Kaepernick before in terms of the previous litigation involving his employment. And so the idea of this this kind of sham workout situation, and most people that I think understand that a Saturday workout, just in terms of scheduling, is not conducive to a league like the NFL, which plays on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays. So, you know, like, and that's why they do everything on Tuesdays. Tuesdays a day, <laughs> right? So Tuesday, so just starting from that standpoint of the way everything got set up, where there was an understanding of Tuesday workout, which most of the time, if you watch something like NFL, NFL Live, you'll see like someone will be brought in or they'll discuss someone being signed after that, these Tuesday workouts, right? So Saturday is just not a day that works for anyone. And so some of it is like that date matters in terms of the se- how serious we're taking this workout. I think the time frame of what it means this many seasons out matters because people get brought in for workouts all the time. And if you watch the NFL, you've seen a lot of really bad quarterbacks over the past couple of years for multiple teams. So the idea of like this being this NFL sanctioned event does matter in terms of framing the backdrop of what this waiver means. And the waiver being wildly specific and and dealing with this idea of not being able to seek future litigation regarding this being a fair shake at this is really what a lot of people that have JDs (laughs) have been writing about in terms of this isn't the standard language. The standard standard language for a waiver is the single one-page page that's mostly about, hey, if you get hurt, we're not going to cover your your injuries, right? Your your insurance will have to cover you in this example, which is not unlike the kind of waivers people sign to do recreational things that might injure them, right? And so this idea that there's all these employment-specific notions that are attached to this document is what gave his lawyer pause. And, and one of the lawyers that I saw that was one of the sports um, agents I saw tweeting was like, you know, some lawyers would consider it malpractice if you allowed your client to sign something like this because it covers so much more than what this particular tryout or what this workout is supposed to represent. And so anything that seems excessive is something that should not be, you know, part of this. So this idea of like, okay, you told us you, this was going to happen. You told us we'd have a list of receivers. You told us we would know all of these things. You told us media would be allowed. All these things that are suddenly being rolled back within this very tight 72-hour window. And there's a scrambling, right? So there's a need to, in many ways, bear witness to how this is evolving over time. Because like you said, there will be a master narrative of what happened. It is in our best interest to have this continuous record. The, the downfall is it's Twitter, right? So there's this constantly updating feed and so many narratives about who is going, who is standing outside of this stadium and holding these signs and wearing these jerseys and all the Kappa elders and all this stuff is like happening. And it's, it's taking us away from the fundamental aspect of there are people that sue their employer all the time and go back to work, right? So the idea of, well, what does a win look like for Kaepernick? Is it for him playing back in the NFL, right? And the, the danger that this league, you know, has potentially for him on his body and his mind, who I, which I, I think he has all these contributions he's made since then, right? So the idea of the Know Your Rights campaign in itself has already raised consciousness in a particular way. The protest itself has already done work that's very important. And so some of it is in doing this, he has called attention to so many things that is it already a win, regardless of what happens, right? And then this idea of distrust of the league, right? So some people like, you don't want to play because you don't trust the league. There's a way that, you know, I saw Dan Levitar today, you know, 
I saw Dan Levitard really break down what that means in terms of, you know, Tom Brady didn't trust the league. And regardless of how you feel about Deflategate, I really thought it was telling that, you know, Levitard points to why should anyone trust this league based on how they have treated their athletes based on a very weak CBA and a weak player situation that has not protected its players on things that have way less political leanings, right? Yes, exactly. So the idea of like, if Tom Brady can't trust the NFL and and literal rules have been changed because of him, why right. should... Then nobody can trust them. Right. Who's, how is Kaepernick supposed to even operate within that space? And how many of us also go to work every day and are, are supposed to think about, oh, I'm just going to trust the administration or I'm going to just trust yeah. my, my boss that, you know... Yeah, I don't know about you, but I have oodles to trust for Penn State. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure that administration... You know, so <laughs> I, I'm sure that that all of us have these grievances, right? That are not on public display or put on 24 hour rotation with talking heads, but we all have this distrust because it's built into the very fabric of our labor. And so if we make this about our labor versus the ways that it's been contorted into all of these other various things, if we make it about a protest about police brutality and not the anthem or the troops or whoever else wants to get involved in that fray. And if we make this particular stand about what it means to be employable, what it means to be a viable candidate and and show proof of that, this idea he doesn't want to play, but somehow he's maintained impeccable NFL shape for years. Like, how can we dispute these visual things we can represent? You know, like we can see this for ourselves. And you're right, this disinformation continues to plague us in this case, as well as like everything else. You know, I felt that like flat earthers hole the other day of like, how can this be? Like they're having conferences about, you know, <laughs> flat earth, right? So it's like, there's this wild disinformation and a lack of belief in in what I'm going to call facts, like facts that we can vis- visibly view for ourselves. We have experts. It's kind of this like disinformation stage that we're at that Kaepernick is is so indicative of right now in terms of how people are reading this particular moment. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I really appreciate the labor aspect of this because it's a labor issue. And because we've layered all these narratives and there are all these narratives kind of within the moment, sometimes we can lose sight of, of the baseline of some of the basic facts, which doesn't mean that we discount our other narratives or we, we don't look about, look at, you know, protests and police brutality and all this stuff. But it, it, I think you're right that occasionally what it does is it clouds some of the issues at hand. And so what we're left with is essentially what we saw, a sham of a workout. Somebody said they wanted him to cook a gourmet meal and didn't even tell him what ingredients, <laughs> you know, he had to work yeah. with. You have a sham of the workout. You have now new footage. You have a 90-second clip of him talking. You have Eric Reed and Stephen A. jawing back and forth. You have everybody and their mamas commenting on it again. And here we are three-plus years out in many ways, having the same iteration of a conversation that started then and really started long before that, but certainly has been made more visible, rendered more visible and more vocal under Kaepernick. So I think that it probably is not the last time we'll end up talking (laughs) about him, but I appreciate your kind of insight on this moment. I would be remiss to let you, you know, come on and spit bars on this pod and not ask you a basketball specific question. So we're in a moment where the WNBA um, is 
not only showing incredible kind of activism, you know, Maya, I think, and Natasha Cloud are really just doing remarkable work. I think about that. I think about just the state of the WNBA and the women's game and obviously equal pay, maternal rights. You know, there's a lot of things on the table. Um, They're, you know, litigating, a new, trying to get a new CBA done, et cetera. But I want to know for you, what is one aspect of um, kind of the fight that is in front of WNBA players that you're paying close attention to? Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm really, you know, one of the things for people that I know that there's been a lot of buzz around around Team USA, losing to Oregon. I'm obviously here in Eugene. So there's like a lot of energy around that and around, you know, in, in the larger conversation, even I saw about Sabrina and her jersey and it's selling out and kind of like the ways in which the popularity and growth of women's basketball is largely constantly questioned or in many ways deflected, disrespected. And so there is a way that the game itself is growing, right? And then we see that from, I mean, I'm even thinking about the Becky Hammond thing the other day when Pop was rejected. There's ways in which women's basketball is very much embedded into the fabric of sports culture, mainstream sports culture, but it's constantly also disrespected, disregarded, even as it's doing the very same things we're talking about, whether it's about protests, whether it's about collective bargaining agreements. And then this travel thing lately that's that's struck, you can look at it from the WNBA level in terms of players getting stuck various places, writing coach, the ways in which someone, you know, I think the all-star game and Brittany Griner getting a middle seat on an economy flight is really a visual. Yeah, in what world does Brittany Griner fit in a damn w- middle seat? Right. Like the ways that we can visually see these discrepancies in terms of how this operates and, and the difference between how, for example, the WNBA, a league that's over 70% black women, is viewed very differently in terms of their struggles in terms of labor versus the U.S. women's national team, right? So I'm even, even thinking about how the way that those discussions in terms of labor and equality are framed differently for those two leagues and and two sports, really. So for me, one of the things I'm interested in, the CBA is going to be very interesting. I'm interested in how Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird were part of the group negotiating for Team USA to pay to keep them and NECA Ogumake here to do kind of this, this tour around the U.S. and globally. They were in Argentina to kind of talk, you know, sell the Team USA going into Tokyo in 2020. And so for them to get stuck, and this is also the time that, you know, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, their podcast, uh, their 30 for 30 podcast on their experience playing overseas in Russia comes out. You know, we also at the same time get this moment where we have these world class athletes, the best basketball players in the world are stuck and in, in, on their way to play this game, to represent this country that sells itself as this beacon of freedom and equality and all of these things and have to do this long eight to nine hour ride to, to reach their destination to then play a game and then to, to then be dominant, right? So I've been thinking about that in terms of what that means um, both at the WNBA level, because if you think about college level and and the 30 for 30 with Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, that podcast talked about, if you fly, you know, UConn, you're flying in luxury, right? And so for a lot of these college programs, 
that are the, the top cal- caliber programs, you're flying private, you're flying first class, you're flying in this incredible situation. You go to the WNBA or even now we can say you play for Team USA and there are all these barriers to just moving throughout the country or moving around the globe to begin to compete. And so that's just, to me, so fascinating to think about what it means in terms of being able to move about the country, move about the world and represent a country that you feel like oftentimes heralds itself in a way that as many people have pointed out, Diana Taurasi most recently, you know, this idea of capitalism is upheld, whereas they go to Russia and get paid crazy amounts of money to to play compared to the WNBA, right? So I think the travel thing will be huge in the next CBA, but I think something about it is just so symbolic in terms of like, movement, right? And so, you know, for me, my work, I kind of use the crossover, the basketball move, the crossover to think about people crossing over borders. I I think about the ways that they, you know, this crossover appeal of women, like who can be appealing, who can sell in a particular way. And so Skylar Diggins, Smith and, and her recent kind of her discussion surrounding maternal health and parental leave in the league. Interesting because she can no longer be kind of used as this very like attractive standard of basketball because she's like, no, I have things to say as well. And, and all of them aren't going to make the WNBA money. Right. So I, I'm so fascinated in this particular moment about this concept of the crossover and what it means as people are trying to cross over to just compete as well as the way their labor is, is kind of used to sell a certain idea of Americanness, for example, a certain ideal of women's sport. Um, and then, and also what that means is they're kind of maneuvering and using platforms like social media. They're using their own books. Devro Peters is, in, is creating her own platform to just talk, you know, kind of similar to uninterrupted to create a platform that's just about um, women's basketball. I'm so empowered to think about like what the crossover as this very deceptive basketball move, what that means in terms of the way they're also creating these narratives for the and for each other and kind of creating space, right? You think about you cross someone over, you break a couple ankles, the ways that you're also creating space for yourself or for other people, right? So it's a very, for me, like a very amazing way to think about like these subversive things that these athletes are doing and the journalists that support them are doing in this particular moment because thinking about it as labor, I think helps us think about how our own labor is valued or not valued, especially as women. And then I'm thinking about also what it means largely in terms of like, our own connections to, like you talked about earlier, like migrant labor, thinking about how their labor is, is viewed across these, you know, or valued in, very, in various places that aren't the U.S., as well as what it means, like, as we approach this Olympics, right? So the Olympics has a refugee Olympic team. And so thinking about how we are rethinking citizenship in a particular way, also high Kaepernick, and what it means to be a good citizen, a good athlete, all these things to me are constantly kind of bouncing around in my head as I'm as I'm thinking, because it's it's revealing things about things that are outside of sport, as it always has. And now it's harder and harder because of social media. A lot of people would argue, I would too, um, but that's why we're we're it's we're unable to escape the larger narrative because we have all these other ways of accessing these actual athlete voices, which I think are important, as well as all of the various experts that can tell us what's really happening. Yeah, precisely. And I and I think that that's, you know, the point about social media and how it changes how we have these conversations. And perhaps just to circle back to when we were talking about the voices that we hear talking about Kaepernick, you know, thinking about the way that Twitter and social media in many ways have, have, has been democratizing 
and it has opened up lanes where before there was none. And, you know, it's interesting seeing who engages with each other, but I see, you know, Ava DuVernay's like, you know, coming through with haymakers and like posting Stephen A. Smith, you know, like every, it, it muddies the waters a little bit. It muddies the lanes. And I think that that has the ability to amplify more voices in many ways. And so, you know, social media has definitely changed a lot of the context of these conversations or just who gets to talk. And I, for one, am so pleased to have your voice in the middle of that fray. Thank you so much for coming on Burn It All Down and and sharing with us your insight and your expertise. And I hope this is not the last time that we have you on, but I I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, (laughs) And please call me back anytime. This is like our favorite thing. (laughs) Yes. Okay, I have a a sort of uh, fun segment that I want to do. <laughs> you guys will <laughs> indulge me. I don't know how many of you saw um, this tweet by Ryan Reinhart, who is the host of a KU sports podcast. As many of you might have seen, probably have seen, because ESPN personalities have been tweeting out about Disney Plus, very contractually bound, apparently, (laughs) to hype out Disney Plus. (laughs) Disney Plus is here. It is here. I must admit, I do have it only because I already had Hulu and ESPN. So pro tip, if you already have Hulu and ESPN, adding Disney Plus is actually only a dollar a month. So anyways, part of the rollout included access to old Disney Channel original movies that if you were an older millennial like me with access to cable... Um, you might remember and be very nostalgic for, including the one terribly named Double Team. If you <laughs> remember, Double not Team an X-rated is about... film. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember, Double Team oh. is about is based on a true story about <laughs> twins playing basketball. But <laughs> Ryan Reinhardt offered in a tweet the funniest <laughs> breakdown of the final play in Double Team. <laughs> Where he very aptly critiqued the actual basketball being played in it, especially the part where she miraculously, without taking a single step, moves from half court to the three-point line, and then doing this little shuffle move where she's alternating ankles but not doing anything. Isn't that a travel um, anyway? Like- yeah, and then she travels, and, and he's right, and he's absolutely right. It's a terrible, terrible, like the basketball itself and the sports, is it's terrible. The game is so unbelievable you see the shot clock is like at five seconds and then the scene unfolds for two minutes but it was hilarious and it got me thinking about the sports movies in in tv that actual playing of the games looks good and when it really doesn't so shireen i know you love bend it like beckham but it really made me want to ask you is the football good in it yeah that's a very fair question and before we start this segment which i totally appreciate and i'm excited about amira so thank you we all know that Bennett Like Beckham is the greatest film in cinematic history. So <laughs> I think what's like critical here is when you look at the football, there's a part of us that watches sports movies for those of us that love sports. And we kind of put that aside. So there I'm going to say the answer is okay. no. The football's not okay. Good. Okay. Well, like mm-hmm. you, you, you try so you can absorb this, the plot and the story, whatever. So what I do is with Bennett Like Beckham, the terminology, the, the they capture the culture of what the clubs look like and the emotion so well. 
basically to get Jess to dribble into the six yard box. Like where are the defenders here? Like, and I'm a forward. So when Jess and Jules are up there, they're literally playing football about five feet away from the net, which you, which doesn't happen. So technically, I mean, if you get an opportunity to dribble into the net, then that's great. But then, I mean, it's like from the other team, the defense, like, what are they doing? Are they comatose? Like, where is everybody? So, but I mean, when they were practicing the drills that they did, they actually had technical support come and work. And Gurinder Chadha talked about this because she herself knows nothing about football. She's admittedly, she said this, but so if they had technical people come to so their drills and their preparation. So a very little of the actual story in the film was a, in play. It was more about leading up to it. But when they're on, like Jeff's, Jess is in that iconic moment where she takes, you know, a free kick. The way that the ball curved, they didn't actually show the ball. They showed the camera being in the ball. So that was a really great way to get around that. So I think there was, there was tricks and stuff used. To answer your question very simply, the football was not fantastic, but leading up to it, the, one of the trainers who worked with Kira Knightley said that she was doing stuff because of her tenacity and willingness, like she works really hard in whatever role she's doing. She was doing stuff that semi-pro players were doing, like just in yeah. terms of, so I appreciated that. But yeah, I mean, you, you're you not a footballer. The way you're going to kick is not going to be the way one does. So there obviously will be, you know, that notwithstanding, it's still the best movie ever. <laughs> okay, Bren, what about you? Okay, so my film is it blows anything out of the water. I'm just going to tell you right now, for bad, even the double teamed, even double teamed. And it is the 1981 Escape to Victory, which is, is oh my God, have you no. guys seen it? You haven't seen it. Holy shit. Okay, so it's Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> And Pele. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just get I just get Okay. All right. Here's a plot for people who haven't seen it. It's World War II and Nazis want to use. Oh, my use- God. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, right. We, yeah, I did just, not expect Nazis <laughs> to be in the <laughs> If you didn't expect Nazis, you would be wrong. So it is the Nazis want to use the football to spread their propaganda. It's 1981. And the Nazis put together a team and they want to play prisoners of war from the Allies. Wait, like it's Allied 1981? No, no, the, the film comes out in 1980. And I, sorry, the film comes out in 1981. I believe the film is more or less set in 1942. Okay. <laughs> is it based and, on a true story? Hell no. Okay. And everybody, everybody wants to make it into a true story. It's like, it's like, are you kidding? These are prisoners. These are prisoners in a Nazi prison and they look great. Like everybody, like, oh like Stallone looks like he's on a 5,000 calorie diet a day. Like it's, it's so crazy. So anyway, it's Michael Caine as the coach. Oh my God. Pelé is supposedly from Trinidad. Oh. That is the most unlikely part of the entire thing, except that Sylvester Stallone's the goalie. <laughs> <laughs> You just have to YouTube it. I mean, I can't do I can't do justice to how <laughs> truly bad is the film, but it is really worth YouTubing. I guess I would say the one thing I would say about it is that Pele does a really lovely bicycle kick, and it's absolutely believable. Because um, <laughs> right, I mean, everything he does is is believable. But um, there is a <laughs> I just okay. Last thing I promise, there's a point in there where. 
Sylvester Stallone has never been a goalie before, but he wants to escape because they're planning this escape through this soccer game, which eventually they do. And he's never played goalie before, but is able to catch a kick from Pelé. And it's like so soft. Anyway, it's it's just amazing. Yeah, I'll just stop there because I don't <laughs> want to ruin it for you all. <laughs> it sounds like something that we should all get high and watch. Can we not say that? <laughs> Legally, we'll go to Colorado. You can come to Canada, Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, all the places. Not that we can do a tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that we've ever thought about it. <laughs> okay, I'll go briefly. Um, the love in basketball, which I adore, even though I know people have problems with it, is. You know, they always have Monica's signature thing when she throws up a shot and she keeps her arm in the air and it becomes a plot point later in the movie when she finally gets to college and she does that and then the girl runs past her and her scores and you know her coach makes her stand with her arm in the air but even with that the way that she considers every shot after it happens has always driven me crazy and it's not just like that she celebrates but she like stands there watches it goes in celebrates trash talks and it's like baby girl you have to keep moving <laughs> Like this, like, this is basketball. So that was like a minor part of the movie that always, always, always drove me up a wall. Because I was just like, you can do all of that, like, and move. If West Wing can figure out how to shoot, like, a walk and talk through hallways, like, I swear Love and Basketball could have figured out how to have her running back and still making the same face. But she was always just, like, standing still. And that got under my skin. I don't know why. So I, I thought about that this week. But I do have to say, sports done well in movies, um, for me, is Quidditch. And I know that that's maybe not a real sport. But I find the way that they shoot Quidditch matches incredibly compelling to the point that obviously it's inspired whole leagues and like people like myself to say, like, and if I wasn't a history professor, I would totally, totally be like a history of Quidditch like critical Quidditch studies professor at Hogwarts. And I think that, you know, that has large part to do with the way that the camera angles like really brought the game to life. So that's just me. And Linz? Yeah, I always think in sports that movies that they just make the field of like competition so much bigger than it actually is. Like <laughs> if you think back to the Mighty Duck scenes, like the ice oh. rink is not that big. <laughs> <laughs> like to have the to form the V to have it go like you'd already be at the other goal like it's just the other net so that stuff always sticks out to me like time and space don't really exist fully in sports movies and I love and obviously like I understand why but I'll you know the classics like bring it on where you know it'll yeah. go to the close-up that's obviously not the main character doing the like right. all this tumbling and then you know then you're back to the wide shot and all of those like camera tricks always kill me because you know i mean i get it like i don't expect gabrielle union to do all that stuff but it's just so funny right but i'm so happy you said bring it on lens because the other thing that i was thinking about is like how in the movies like we also are forced to believe like when you watch the end of Bring It On, I know that I shouldn't say this. I'm like whispering. I'm like scared to say this out loud. But like the black girls didn't win. Like they weren't better <laughs> at the last yeah. scene. Like they, it just, they weren't. Amira, but, I don't think you can say that. <laughs> okay, but they weren't. 
I can't. I can't like, say they were anything. Better. And they, <laughs> the the white team should have been disqualified because they were stealing. They shouldn't have had a chance to play again or be in the competition that year. But like their routine was a mashup of multiple things, and I know that they had to. Like I know that the Clovers had to win. It just like secretly we would be like, but for real though, like they. Okay. Well, I didn't get I'm enough hate cut. mail this week. Bernard Aldell's going to get more hate mail this week. <laughs> I'm like whispering it, but it's true. We're doomed. Anyways, Lindsay, keep going. <laughs> I- I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody say something else. Chase the title. Okay. Best sports that I've seen, Airbud. That dog is technically legit. <laughs> Which That's button? uncontroversial. Non-controversial. It's not. <laughs> And this is a great time to remind everybody, as I rem- discovered on the show I, like a year ago, there is not, there's so many Airbud movies, like <laughs> including for like volleyball. <laughs> and, like, it's really like, I need you all to run. I think maybe they're even on Disney Plus. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> they are. He, Airbud spikes back. <laughs> there's, there's like eight of them, of the aren't there? There's like, there's, there's, a, there's many, many. Yeah. Yes. Anyways, all right, moving on. Time for everyone's favorite section, the burn pile. Bren, what are you burning this week? I am burning a blog post by Jalen Hinkle, the North Carolina Courage player, who doubled down on her decision to not wear the rainbow shirt when she was called up for the U.S. Women's National Team. And you can you can read the post and and see what you think. I would like to burn the post. Basically, it's a very a post full of euphemisms about her homophobia and saying, you know, that she still feels as though, you know, she didn't, that this decision wasn't hers. It was God's. God didn't want her to wear the shirt. And I just can't even with it. I mean, at a certain point, she's feeling so sorry for herself. She sees herself as such a martyr. You know, it's constantly comparing herself to Jesus, which I think you're not supposed to really do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was raised Catholic, so forgive me about my ignorance towards Protestantism, but I'm fairly certain that's not cool. And then she says, I mean, like the one quote is, crosses used in the days of Jesus weighed 300 pounds. Like, Wait, so? that's a quote that she yeah. wrote? Yeah, she wrote that with her So she like saying, <laughs> like, this, so I can carry this heavy yes, burden too? that's what she said. Well, she said she struggled under the burden until she realized that she had to give it up to Jesus to carry, which is like, now you're giving him the cross again? I mean, the whole thing is like, it's just a convoluted way to both appease her fellow homophobic Christians and to maybe try to sort of soften the the position in which she appeared in the, you know, 700 club and whatever. And in the end, it comes out exactly the same. So I just want to burn her attempt at wishy-washy homophobia. It's not fooling Very quickly, me. she does call Ashlyn Harris Satan in the middle. Of it I know. Like, I'm she so says, done. this so summer, done. Satan came back and reminded me. And it was very clearly talking about Ashlyn Harris's tweets, which were referencing uh, Jaylene Hinkle not being on the team because she wouldn't wear the jersey, but because she was intolerant. Yeah, burn, burn it down, right? Burn. Yeah, burn. burn. 
Yeah, for my burn pile this week, I want to set flames to <laughs> yes. Stephen A. Smith. Yes. Twitter rants and video regarding Kaepernick's situation. Look, I've heard from and I know that Stephen A. has been very vital in the kind of pipeline for developing like black talent at ESPN. I want to respect that. But also, like, shutting the fuck up is also an option. My man's, like, literally woke up, must have glanced at what was happening with Kaepernick, and recorded a video so full of inaccuracies and ridiculousness that, like, I can't even deal with it. It, You know, I just don't understand, like, why you're holding water for this league. Like, your, your tweets, your back and forth with Eric Reed, your assertion that... Colin doesn't want to play. He just wants to be a martyr. It's damaging. It's built on the falsehoods. Your argument boils down to the fact that you are mad that he moved to workout and that's an example of him not wanting to play. You want him to have faith in a league that offered no transparency, that wanted to not tell him what receivers were there, what coaches were going to be there, that gave him 72 hours to do all of this workout in the first place, then tried to make him sign a waiver that's not a normal waiver of liability, but a waiver that has all of this legalese about not ever getting, you know, doing legal action pursuant of employment. It's not normal. And this is the league you want to cap for? Like, why are you repeatedly carrying water for them. Your sources time and time again from quote unquote inside the NFL are clearly feeding you wrong information and yet you continue to spew it. And this is just the latest iteration. And it's unfortunately a narrative that I've now seen parroted. And especially with people who can point to and say, oh, Stephen A. Smith is on TV, a steam talking head, a journalist, and most importantly, a black voice that is co-signing my position that Kaepernick wants to be a martyr, is not interested in playing, and this whole thing is a sham. What's a sham is how the NFL is proceeding. This whole workout was a sham. And the fact that you're, you're taking time out of your day to make a cute little video and carry water and caping for them is just like it's Whitlockian, it's unnecessary, it's damaging, and I'm over it. I just want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. Uh, Shireen, what do you got? Yeah, I want to, uh, you know, in addition to those very important burns, I wanted to draw attention to a woman named Gazella Bensereti, who is a Muslim woman who went to the Denver Nuggets Pepsi Center on November 5th. And what ended up happening was she was there because her daughter was part of the choir singing the national anthem. Now, Gazella Bensereti wears a headscarf. She wears the hijab. But that day she was wearing it more of like turban style, like because, you know, she's fashionable, she's fashionable and aware. And it's her preference. So she got there, but she was basically harassed by the Pepsi Center staff. And there was one, she had a thread about it, which I shared on Twitter. She had one particular staffer named Dorothy and who went after her. And, you know, Ben Sreti said that there was men in front of her with baseball caps on, white guys, and nothing. They weren't asked. They were nothing. They weren't asked to remove their caps for the security check because you, before you go into the Pepsi Center, you have to go through, you know, a security check. There's usually um, metal detectors, that kind of thing. They check your purses, your bags, whatever. So. She was she was really humiliated. She was very, very specifically targeted. And she tried to explain. And the tickets that she had were at will call. So like 
they had free tickets to go. And she said she was refused and subsequently subjected to public humiliation in front of staff, students, and other parents until her daughter became distraught, believing her mom would not be allowed to see her perform. And that's what the news released. CARE uh, got involved. The um, Council for American Islamic Relations got involved. And just, you know, I on a side note, I reached out to the Pepsi Center and the Nuggets like on a on a side, I got no response. But finally, a spokeswoman for Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, who I guess are in charge of this, said that a security agent didn't recognize that Ben Sarati was wearing a hijab. But that's actually not true because she told them it was for religious reasons. It's her headscarf. It's her hijab. She said this. She did inform them and they didn't care. They told her she had to take it off, which is so it's so upsetting. It's a form of violence. And then she said, I can take it off in a private room with you, but I don't want to expose myself here. She was just ridiculed. And that is so violent and it is so jarring and upsetting. I want to burn this. Burn. Burn. Certainly. Lindsay, take us home. Yeah, I'll be quick. Uh, NCAA, you're back on the burn pile. I know I just had you on here last week, but, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award, I guess. You know, let's talk about transfers. You know, the NCAA has officially rejected now twice because it didn't, uh, it rejected the appeal of Avina Westbrook's transfer from Tennessee to UConn. Of course, you know, the coaching staff had changed. She was clearly very unhappy with the Tennessee coaching staff. And now it is taking away an entire year of, not a year of eligibility, but it's forcing her to sit on the sidelines for an entire year. This is a player who has, you know, WNBA and pro potential. And it's staggering that the NCAA would A, not let a player like this make any money, and then B, control their ability to switch schools, which is something that students do every single day. Like, uh, it's a very normal thing for students to transfer schools. And so, once again, they're treating these students like employees and yet not giving them any of the benefits of employment. And it's not just Avina, but that's the most kind of high profile example in my world. And, you know, Gino has come forward and he's been very upset about it. He said she was in an environment that wasn't necessarily healthy, an environment that if you knew what the environment was, which I can't say, you would not want your kid in that environment. And it just goes to show like these rules end up punishing these young athletes. And, you know, the fact it's just it's sickening. It just makes me nauseous. So NCAA, once again, burn. Burn. They're always there. God, they're awful. After all that burning, it's time to recognize some badass women of the week. First, I want to recognize and uh, acknowledge the passing of Dona Vera Cristina Zabala Clemente. For those of you who don't know her or recognize the name, she was the surviving widow of Pittsburgh Pirates, Roberto Clemente, Puerto Rican All-Star, somebody who is so meaningful for so many of us. And after Roberto Clemente died in a plane crash, New Year's Eve, 1972, as he was bringing disaster relief supplies to Nicaragua. His wife really stepped on and carried the torch of his legacy. 
she made his mission as a, a baseball player, but moreover as a man, as a humanitarian, as a person, to continue. She said, um, in 94, she reflected, she said, you know, that was his special mission, and I admire him for that. So his image, I keep alive. I feel happy doing what I'm doing. She was a ambassador for Major League Baseball and somebody who just embodied so much of, of what's right in the world. So Donna Alavanza um, and, and farewell. So honorable mentions this week include the Spanish women professional soccer players who are striking for better wages and conditions. We see you in solidarity and in love. We also want to shout out all the athletes competing this weekend in the Para-Athletics World Championships taking place in Dubai. This weekend, we also have the 2019 International Roller Derby Championships, the WFTDA. And we don't know the champions yet because the games take place later today at time of recording. We're in the morning still. But we did want to send a special shout out to those who competed in We Are a Nation, a game without borders. If you remember when Shireen talked to Raven in episode 129, they previewed this match. And I did want to send a special shout out to Team Indigenous and the Jewish Roller Derby team who played this historic game on Saturday, November 16th, a team indigenous won 138 to 119. But we wanted to spend a special shout out to both teams that competed and everybody competing at WFTDA this weekend. Also, the Japanese Football Association just announced they're going to establish a new professional women's soccer league starting in 2021. They're expected to be six to eight teams, and they're hoping to capitalize on the popularity of the Tokyo Olympics. We want to send a hearty congratulations to 14-year-old tackle football player Maya Sluban of St. Joseph's Catholic High School in Ottawa. She was the first girl ever to score a varsity touchdown. Shout out to the 30,661 dedicated fans who watched Lyonnais beat Paris Saint-Germain women in France. Lyonnais won 1-0. The crowd was riveted, and it was the first time that over 30,000 people have watched a domestic women's league match. Uh, and they say women's sports don't. So <laughs> Blasphemy. Anyways. And can I get a drum roll, please? Yay. Our badass women of the week this week are the Chilean national women's soccer team for their public support uh, towards the democracy movement and the statements against brutality shown against protesters there. Last week, there was a, they played a doubleheader, but before the match, the women posed holding a poster that read Chilean democracy tortures, rapes, maims, and kills its citizens. So shout out to you. You are our badass women of the week. Woo! All right, y'all. What's good in your world? Brenda? What's good for me this week? Well, over the past week, I went to Duke University and got to discuss my book that I co-authored with Joshua Nadel, who's at University of North Carolina Central. And it was thrilling because I don't get to see him all that often. And it just makes it so much more fun when we can be in the same place. So friend of the show, Laurent Dubois, brought us and it was a really great time at The Regulator, which is a bookstore in Durham. Some nice Burn and All Down fans showed up too. Thanks to Adam for coming out. 
And Grant Farad also presented on his new book. So that was really awesome. And let's see, going forward, I get to see Shireen December 7th and 8th at Princeton for their soccer conference. So I don't know, that's that's all pretty good for me. All right, Lindsay, what's good with you? Uh, yeah, so this week I went to the Athlete Ally Action Awards and it was um, a really inspiring evening. Uh, Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger were given the award um, given one of the many awards, also saw MLS player Colin Martin be awarded. And for me, the most uh, moving was to see the trans student athletes and activists Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller take the stage. They're both still in high school. Um, they are track athletes and they are the subject of so much scrutiny and hate. And I got to talk to Terry for a minute and one of the things she said that really stuck with me was I said, you know, how are you dealing with all of this? And she said, it's, it's coming from the parents. It's just a, it's not coming from her fellow student, you know, her fellow competitors, mostly like the hate is coming at parents coming from adults. And so just want to give a shout out to Andrea and Terry, we are with you. We are supporting you. And it was an honor to meet both of you. And it was so cool to see their friendship and how much they've been able to help each other through all of this. So that was just, that was a wonderful evening. I want to thank Athlete Ally and every, so many people came up to me and said they listened to the podcast or subscribed to Power Plays and it was just so cool. Yes. Shireen, what is good with you? I was in Kingston at a panel called Muslim Femininities in Sport, and I've done tons of panels. You all know this, but this is the first time I've ever done a panel on sports with all Muslim women on it. So it was me, Amina Mohammed, who is somebody I love. She's actually somebody who runs my website. I used to coach her in soccer. She's a lifelong hockey player. Her family is Somali Kenyan. She's amazing. She's like an incredible hockey player. And with Sarah Aboud, who just started this amazing uh, modest sportswear company that makes hijabs for women and turbans for sick men. So it's like, she's amazing, like collaborating with different communities. It was just such an honor to be there and learn from these young women. And so it was organized by Dr. Courtney Sito and Dr. Shobana Xavier, who are both at Queen's University. And then we had a BIPOC potluck, and it was just awesome to be there in that space. And they taught me saying things, something new, that it's not calling it a safe space, but calling it a brave space. And it's something that at one point I want to expand on on the show just to talk about how safe space is now used as a shield by white folks against racialized people to like freedom of expression, whatever, but saying brave space is you can be who you are and create spaces where you can be brave. And it was just, it was a lot of learning for me. Also, this is really fun. There is a Tunisian Californian artist named Samia Zatuni, who I found on Instagram and she literally made an animated version of a photo I sent her of myself. And it was, Oh yeah, I saw it. It was so cool. It was so fun. It was like literally so much fun. And I'm doing this thing where I'm trying to get art instead of going to Zara and buying sweaters that I don't need. I'm trying to get like interesting things and just get stuff from women, whether it's art or whatnot. Like I'm just, that's entrepreneurial wise. Women are just amazing, particularly women of color. She did a great job and I was so, so excited. And apparently she got like at least 20 requests for more. So I was very happy for that. Yeah. That's awesome. 
So my what's good, I'm, I'm back from my travels. I was in Hawaii for the American Studies Association Conference, and I love seeing the Sports Study Caucus there. Um, it's really some amazing work being done in radical sports studies and coming together with the um, the folks there to talk about that. I was on a panel about the Black Pacific, which is really fun to talk and think about Black bodies and racialized Black bodies in the Pacific world and Micronesia and Hawaii and all over Polynesia. And that was uh, a thrilling panel to be a part of and just to catch up with all of uh, my academic folks there was a good time. And also it was warm and I like, you know, not being cold. So that was <laughs> ideal. And then I, I got back and I headed to Bloomsburg University for a conversation about race in athletic protests. And I had the ultimate honor of uh, hanging out and doing the panel with uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, oh. who protested <laughs> in 2001 um, in the NBA and then was blackballed by the league for refusing to stand for the anthem, as well as Gwen Berry, who, if you remember, we've talked about on the show before, a hammer thrower who protested at the Pan Am Games, and um, Matt Spoler, who's a PBS producer of the Retro Report. And we had a wonderful discussion, and it was just an honor to um, sit and chat with with them about their athletic protest and their, their journey to that space. And then lastly, I wanted to highlight uh, and shout out Bill Russell. Bill Russell, Celtics great, and just just overall phenomenal human being. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1975, but he refused to accept it and to take his ring and to be inducted in back then. And part of the reason he gave was that he felt like there's other people who should go in before him who had paved the path to his ability to do that. And so one of those people was Chuck Cooper. Uh, Chuck Cooper was the first African-American player drafted by the NBA back in 1950. And he was Chuck Cooper was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. And so Bill Russell decided that he would finally accept his ring. So he tweeted out a picture with his wife and his friends, and including Ann Myers and Bill Walton and Alonzo Mourning. And he said, I've accepted my Hall of Fame ring. In 75, I refused being the first Black player into the Hall of Fame. I felt like others before me should have had that honor. It's good to see this progress. And then he acknowledged Chuck Cooper and then he posted pictures with his ring. Yeah. So I just wanted to shout out Bill Russell and Chuck Cooper and and that ring looks good. And before we end the show, one last what's good from all of us is that is our dear co-host Jessica Luther's birthday. At time of recording, when you hear this, it will be a few days after. But we wanted to send a very special happy birthday shout out to Jess. You're amazing. You're a rock star. And we hope your day is absolutely as wonderful as you are. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down is on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, find it, rate it, review it, share it. We love to hear from you. You also can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and on our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find a link to our Patreon. Shout out to our patrons. Uh, you keep us in this game. We love you. And it's, 
It's never too late to become a patron for as low as $2 a month. You will be included in our community over there. You'll get extra content. Lindsay just had an awesome video last month where she did behind the scenes questions with other folks covering uh, WNBA media. It was phenomenal. You'll also be entered to win drawings, giveaways if you're over $5 a month. And you can ask those questions directly there. Please join the campaign. We have a lot of fun over with our Patreon community. On our website, you'll also find show notes, transcripts, and a link to our merchandise store. We have warm weather apparel hitting the merch shop soon. So if you're in cold weather place and you're gearing up for the changing of seasons or getting ready for the holidays, uh, bounce over there and check out uh, what we have for you. I can't remember if there's anything else I need to say. So I will just sign off by saying that's it for me, Amira Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie, Lindsay Gibbs, and Shereen Ahmed. Burn on, not out, and we'll see you next week, flamethrowers.